John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1351.MT1828, certificate number 48968, TV detection vans. Yes, there's a TV set on number five. It's in the front room. And they're watching Columbo. If you don't have a TV license, it won't take us long to find you. You watch a lot of... Media, TV, movies, stuff. You know what I love? I love content. You were saying to me today that um, that one of the things about being quarantined uh, that you've noticed about yourself is that getting together with friends, when you list the things that you're looking forward to at the end of quarantine, getting together with friends, seeing other people is like fifth down the list. <laughs> Of the things that you that you miss the most, I definitely said that I miss restaurants and movie theaters and maybe travel mm-hmm. more than I miss friends. Friends in, in the sense that I would miss like a, a big dinner party or uh, or just uh, or friends clapping people's backs in a bar. Friends in quotes. Friends. No, because I still have contact with my friends. True, but the aspect of them that I miss, like clapping their backs at a bar, it's way below. Restaurants, TV, theaters, movie, movie theaters, and uh, and travel. But in in your in your consumption of content, which I know to be uh, broad and deep, it's omnivorous. Um, if I see content, I just can't help but consume it. How I'm like Pac Man? How much are you a person that wants to be watching the show as it comes mm. out? That you know to be there with everyone else. No spoilers. You want to be like Johnny on the spot. Watch the show. At its debut. Here's what I miss. I miss that being the only option. Mm. And obviously... You love streaming. Well, there were trade-offs back then. You know, like I still remember the year I had my my VCR carefully timed to tape all the... uh, the Twin Peaks episodes I was going to miss while we were out of town for a few weeks. And then the guy house-sitting turned the VCR on. And if you'll remember, VCRs would not... The, the the recorded uh, schedule would not go ahead if the VCR was actually on. Oh, I did not remember this. Explain how that works. Most, so you'd have to use the, uh, the remote, which was a terrible interface, to program the thing with a series of buttons to tell it, hey, uh, at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., you need to start recording at such and such a speed on such and such a day of the week. You had to, you had to stipulate the recording speed? Yes, because on these tapes, you could record at SP, LP, or EP. Okay. And you could get more hours by recording at extended play, but it would uh, it would degrade the quality. It would degrade the quality. I, would, see, I uh, never had a VCR and never did any of this. You never owned a VCR. No, that's not true. I mean, I had a VCR that I could play like tapes that I found at thrift stores because VCRs you could get for nothing. But I never did the thing that you're yes. describing. What which that is, means is you had a VCR that would do this. You just never learned the series of eighty-five key presses, right? Because I never had... Because it was a video cassette recorder. It was a recorder. It's not a VCP. It's not a video cassette player. Oh, I think I, de- I definitely would sit and watch MTV with the with the VCR remote in my hand. And when, you know, when yeah. like a, a, a cool video came on, I would quickly press record. Well, but I think, me back. I think that was before all this programming capacity. Uh, yeah, where you would... Where something like Benny Hill would be on and I would quickly, you know, or, or a Monty Python... 
like a skit that I wanted. So it sucked. I mean, if you if you missed the time when it aired, your options were nothing. Wait till wait till uh, uh, August, and it might run again. Right, or never see it. again. And all your friends would would talk about it the next day, and you would you would miss the best episode of, so, of Simon and Simon ever. So you would read the TV guide. And then set your VC up, VCR up with uh, this complicated... If, if I knew I was going to be gone. I see. Oh, and couldn't watch it yes, live. Yes, I couldn't watch it live. Or if, or if for some reason I wanted to have a shelf full of uh, Captain Planet video cassettes. So I sound like a person who is from another planet or a, like a caveman, because I know a lot of people did this, think, that, think this way now, right? Their DVRs are... Full of programs that they have, I guess, recorded into the DVR somehow by yes. setting. They told their TV and DVR to do that, and it did. And and what it is is there's a there's a TV guide, and you you read it, and you know when programs are coming, and then you set it up to record. Yeah, now it's pretty much all digital. Right. There's no paper guide anywhere. You you look in the DVR, and it'll tell you, hey, uh, do you want to watch? You want to tape every episode of this show? But this is different from streaming, right? You, if you want to watch Rick and Morty... You, then you tell it what time you want it to start, basically. You, but you don't just... Rick and Morty just isn't in the cloud, and you can you can go get whatever you want and watch it a million times. You have to... You're taking this down from yes, a broadcast. And you're actually storing it uh, digitally. Thank you for device. explaining this to me. And really what this means is there's no option I love anymore. Because... Watching things a week at a time when they come out uh, has lost some of its fun and immediacy because some people are waiting. And it is fun to watch. I mean, there are advantages to watching all 10 hours of something back to back to back, like like the new season of Better Call Saul is one big movie. Right. Because now I have the problem where I start a new season of Better Call Saul and I'm like, what's this guy doing? And I have to watch him dink around in his van for 28 minutes. And then three episodes later, I'm like, oh, right. I know why he was out in his van. And do you go back then? This is called binge watching, right? Where you yes. watch it all at once. And it's got and it's got its pluses. You know, you can't experience it all as one piece of art without constantly being like, what's the deal with this a-hole? Right. But that was kind of the fun of watching TV was like, wait, what's what's going on? The fun of watching Better Call Saul in a time past would have been to watch a guy dink around in his van for 28 minutes and not know what it was. For at least another week, but you would know all your you and your all your friends were watching it, so oh. you could call somebody and be. I mean, now you'd have to do this on the internet, but you could you know you could call talk them on about the internet. yeah, better call on the internet. You could talk about what was going on, and you would you would have the sense that everyone else was confused with you. Like right. now, you kind of feel like you're constantly out of the loop because there's so much content. And somebody's already watched it. Somebody's written eighty recaps of this. Right. Um, it's kind of like the worst of both worlds now that we can binge watch, and that kind of makes some things better, and it kind of makes some things worse. But every time you go on the internet, you're worried that somebody is going to come streaming in to your and at you and say, "Hey, Ken, you know what that guy was doing, dinking around in his van on Better Call Saul?" And you're like, "No, no, no! Don't tell me! I'm not well, there even, yet." Even on Twitter. Like I follow, a, I, I have a, a, a actor acquaintance I follow on Twitter. And when his character died on Better Call Saul, I knew years oh, before I saw the episode. Boo! Because you can't avoid that. So what you're saying is that there are things that you prefer to watch in real time. But how how I mean how often are you so involved in a show that I mean often the the big buzzy new shows have no real time the thing that everybody's talking about Amazon just put ten episodes of Tiger King out and then within a few weeks everybody had discovered them and was watching them but there and was all ten of them were there already yes and everybody's watching it at a different time some of your friends are ahead of you some are behind you some watched it all the first night. And people are, because I remember when that happened and on Twitter, I was sitting there having to wade through 50 tweets about like, oh, Tiger King. Oh my God. Can you believe it? And I was like, ah, I'm never going to see this. I'm annoyed by these shows before I see a single minute of them. Yeah. And that's not great. But now what you also, and this, this often uh, surprises and confuses people in the world who think of you as being just a quiz show winning uh, nebbish, but you're also a sports uh, sports ball fan. Sports is something that for me is like, much as I've learned during the quarantine that like 90% of the fun of a restaurant is not the food. Mm. Like watching any sporting event on tape will teach you that 90% of the fun of sports is the simultaneity of it. 
is watching it in real just, time. Just the sense that you are watching an object move through space as it is moving through space and anything could happen. So it's not enough as a sports fan to go back and watch Super Bowl 15 because there's no stakes. Have you yeah, there's no Have you seen a lot of this happening during the I mean sports is canceled right now, all sports. Right. And so sports channels are filling their time with the greatest hits of yesteryear. Uh-huh. So if you want to watch the 1978 American League Championship Series, you can, and and that's kind of fun on a different level. Like, but there's a, th- a, a uncanny valley in the middle where you're where people watch a sporting event from six hours ago or two days ago that they've tried to stay unspoiled about. Right. And there's just a sense that no matter what happens, it's um, there's no free will. You're watching the predestination NFL. I love watching vintage sports, and the simultaneity of sports events has never had any meaning for me. So, like. Sports content, I I love it. I'll watch 30 for 30 uh, movies all day and night. I'll watch Billie Jean King playing tennis, uh, you know, like... But it's not sports anymore to me. Now it's like I'm watching... 1970s ski racing. Even if I'm just watching the event, it's like I'm watching a documentary about it. Right. And I can enjoy the hair and the announcer's weird stuff and the the, uh, the primitive graphics. But, but it's all... very different than the experience of like being on the edge of your couch watching right. something now. And that's a thing I've noticed with uh, over over the course of my life being friends with a lot of sports fans and the fact that if they missed the game but we're going to watch it an hour later like there was a uh, uh, there was a kind of unreality even even if they didn't know that the way the game turned out the fact that it was right. on an hour know, lag. This is deep in my DNA because uh grow, having grown up in South Korea uh in the early 80s the DOD did get satellite TV so that servicemen could watch TV without waiting for tip the tapes to cross an ocean, right? Right. So we could watch CNN headline news and sporting events would come on. But in Korea, the sporting events would come on in the middle of the night. So they would always tape delay Monday Night Football, which should have been on, you know, Monday morning at, at 2 a.m. or something. Uh-huh. Or I guess it would be the next day there. Tuesday morning at 2 a.m. Oh, no, we get it ahead. So, yeah. Anyway, hours and hours earlier, right. and they would save it for our Monday night, which was oh no 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 I'm wrong it would they they would air Sunday night games on Monday night because we're ahead and then the Monday night game would air on Tuesday nights but they'd always save it for prime time and the right. game had happened 16 hours ago right and so if you were in phone conversation with somebody or I guess the results would be in the newspaper right yeah you could sometimes they'd be in the Pacific Stars and Stripes the army paper. Sometimes they would accidentally, sometimes they would embargo the scores on the CNN broadcast. They would actually cut out that part of the, Oh really? Of the highlight reel. Cause they knew they were about to air it. Uh, but you know, there'd be a phone, a phone line would have live scores. You could always get around knowing what would happen. And I hated that. Uh, and I think maybe that's why it's so deep in my DNA that watching a sporting event, even an hour later is not the same. Well, this was true for me, too. Growing up in Alaska, um, we were not like hours and hours and hours ahead. You were centuries behind in some ways. In some in some ways, we were still fighting the Civil War. But um, before 1983, there were multiple time zones within Alaska. There was... Um, Wait, that's not true anymore? Well... It's a lot less true. It used to be that um, that Anchorage was what three hours behind Seattle. Um, Losers. And at a at a certain point in the eighties, that was all tightened up. They got rid of a couple of those intermediary time zones that were kind of you know just like slices of the of the panhandle. They didn't have to move the town. They didn't have to move the town, but it but it did change. It did change this. Uh, you know, this um, time difference, but also in the mid seventies, a lot of television programming was still played locally off of tape. And so the Johnny Carson show was on a week time delay. So you would watch last week's shows. Wow. They would ship the tapes up. Um, Sporting events. It was like a, I think they flew the tape up. Uh, (laughs) Some guy in a float plane. So it was the next day, but, Pre-satellite, it was it was actually like manually moved around. So we were always aware that what we were watching was uh, that we were in a state of time distortion. That 
it was live TV. It was just a week late, a week later than other people. But, you, not, but we, you couldn't hear anyone else talking about it because you're in Alaska and the... Except the newspaper, mm. you know, would reveal... The thing is that news and stuff, they it, it was... They managed to have it current. It was it was stuff like the Carson Show, stuff that was kind of um, more culture based. You know, didn't need to be so immediate. Uh, so there was a constant thing. Like if you went to Seattle, you could watch an episode of TV that wouldn't appear on Alaskan TV for a week. And if you went home, you could talk about like, oh, I know the end of this Columbo mystery or whatever, and everybody would be odd. That's exactly my childhood in <laughs> South Korea. I didn't have to go all the way to Korea. I could have no, stopped in Alaska. Could have been in Alaska. To this day, time. I think I've said this before, Hawaii, I discovered a few years ago, shows the Oscars four hours delayed. So they don't have to air it in the middle of the afternoon. They save it for prime time, right. which is terrible because nowadays on the internet, sure, how could you not be spoiled? Well, if you can, if you can imagine that this difference between live and recorded as as we've progressed into a world of streaming we've gone through a period where and and are still as we just just discussed in a period where live and taped and streamed are all these different kind of ways of consuming content some of them are are precariously proximate to one another i mean if you watch the show mean? as it was broadcast live or you watched or you started watching it while the show was still on, but you started a half hour late, right? You and I, you could start watching a sports game and I could start streaming it 15 minutes later. You're watching it live. I'm watching it streamed, but still, you know, I have a friend who will start the game half an hour late because it lets him fast forward through commercials. But the result is that if I'm not at his house, I cannot talk to him about what's going on in the game because we are watching different parts of a live sporting event right. at the same time. Drives me bananas. Which is kind of genius, but also, right, drives you bananas if you're if if it's the social aspect. Right. If you thing. once you leave in his house, it makes sense. Now, when you think back to the dawn of television, uh, and this comes up on the omnibus all the time, we were. Uh, we lived for many, many decades, and this is something futurelings won't be able to comprehend at all, but for many decades, we we all, globally, television watchers, lived in a world where there were a very few channels. Three with an asterisk. Three with an asterisk, and the asterisk being, at least in the United States, public television. And some local station that would show Twilight Zone reruns a lot. Right. Um, and this was true globally. There were not... There, there, there were generally just a handful of television stations, no matter where you were. And those television stations had, there was no record capacity. VCRs didn't become commonplace, uh, like in the home until the eighties, they were available in the seventies, but you had to be a pretty special kind of mid-century cool kid to have a VCR in your house before about 1982, at least in my experience. Right. Wouldn't yep. you say? I think my, I first saw one at a friend's house in 82 and we got our first one in 83. Three, yeah. So that that was the window, and it was it was a pretty fast adoption from like you don't know anybody who has one to you don't know anybody who doesn't have one. That right. was like two and a half to three years. Everybody had one, and then pretty soon they were just built into televisions. You remember that phase yeah. when every TV had a VCR in it? Sometimes the you put the tape above the screen. Sometimes you put it below the screen, never to the side. Yeah, why never to the side? Or in the yeah, because that's how Mister Rogers has worked. Remember, he put the tape next to picture, picture. Well, and I remember it was kind of uh, it was a thing that like cool bachelors did, where they would put their VCR like they stack it on end, yeah. to have it on there. I don't know what why it looked cool. Yeah, there's no advantage to that. Um, when television was fir first arrived on the scene, a lot of um, well. Most countries were thinking of it as kind of an evolution of radio, right? And that would make sense um, that it was that radio was was enough of a recent development relative to television that that the systems in place to to uh, control radio to to um, to produce radio did apply in the same way that that the first cars were seen as motorized horse carts. And a lot of the artistic choices were based on that. A lot of the early hits were just 
versions of radio comedies, but now you could see the actors. Or we're going to take a quiz show that's been a hit on radio, but now you can see the contestants, all right. the formats, and even the... Sometimes it would even be the same show, but now you could see the band leader. And a lot of the governing rules also sort of felt like they translated directly. It, it, for people in, in the United States, it's hard for us to conceive of the fact that in most countries of the world, the idea of uh, entertainment, content, radio, television, being uh, not supported by commercials, not uh, mm. not funded primarily by the by the selling of ad space. It's kind of a we always well we we call it an asterisk, right? The one the one television content that the the stream of television content that we typically had here was that wasn't commercial uh based that was ad free was this redheaded stepchild of the public broadcasting system. slightly dull you watched it a ton but you knew that it was a little bit dull cuz in between your shows there'd be ads for I mean, ads. There'd be promos for the Boston Pops, right? Or like, uh, like uh, or documentaries. State insurance companies, the uh, Ford Foundation, right? But I mean, just seeing what their other programming was, you're like, this is this has when this is not my Sesame Street. This is uh, orchestras and right, uh, the ballet and, and coral black and reefs. white. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but in a lot of countries of the world, the 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 idea that television content would be something that would be produced by the government, uh, or produced by production companies working for the government, uh, that seemed as natural as as anything. It was not. It seemed very unnatural to privatize television content and make it a thing that uh, was a for profit business. Is it because in most cases? Well, I guess there's a couple of reasons. I guess in a smaller economy, you're going to have fewer players with the ability to produce a TV network. Right. But also, so how did radio work in these countries? Was, well, was radio, a, 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 the big radio broadcaster was a government voice? Absolutely. And, and, and the idea of, well, I mean, what are you going to put on radio in 1920? You know, my, my podcast. You're going to put the Ken Jennings podcast. <laughs> like, why didn't this happen? Why didn't everybody get, get a little transmitter? <laughs> it's like, Hey guys, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be doing a massive rewatch of, uh, our Miss Brooks. Well, they did. I mean, People like your dad, whose best friends were all Siberian <laughs> uh, right. ham radio. Those operators. guys all got ham licenses. But yeah, it was it was a bandwidth issue, or I mean, it was a broad it was a um, it was a uh, a broadcasting power issue in order to have a transmitter that was strong enough to to put your radio show even across your own neighborhood. It would have been it would have required that you that you have some hot amps somewhere up in the attic. Is there also like the, the, the vaunted sense of social responsibility that we hear about from our, our European friends? That I think that 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 there's a big that's a big part of it, and also if you think about what was considered sort of cultural content in the early days of this media, what was media? It was the good books. It was the orchestras. It was the news. There wasn't a ton of what, and there it was sports, but there, there wasn't um, this incredible proliferation of voices. It, it was a very narrow aperture of what was even sort of considered uh, a moral, responsible information to consume. We're talking about an era when most houses had the Bible, a cookbook, and maybe the sonnets. Someone had to invent all these forms. Someone had to invent the soap opera. Right. Someone had to invent the sitcom. And a lot of these came out of commercial uh, considerations. There were there were, there was a vaudeville tradition, a kind of slapstick comedy, um, you know, the penny arcade kind of entertainment. But yeah, a lot- But the idea that you'd listen to a, a bunch of fictional characters have kind of funny adventures in stasis- where you know the, the same kind of householder workplace pattern repeats every week at a certain time, where the to, shadow knows. Yeah, or you know that that kind of thing makes a little more sense because that comes out of the serialized detective fiction, maybe right. of the nineteenth century. Somebody reading aloud from a from a book, right? But the idea that comedy should be you listen to what a, you know what the commonplace stuff that happens in a family, like that powered much of the twentieth century television and 
someone had to decide, hey, this is what comedy is now, because it's not very intuitive. No, what's, right. What's funny about uh, a family having the same situations every that reset and get solved in half an hour? It's kind of crazy to think that a lot of what is is um, is our like not just our entertainment, but what what has built our culture is is effectively derived from listening to the neighbors through the wall with a glass <laughs> against, you know, with your ear against a, a, a drinking glass. Because that's what, that's, it, that's what it is. Why would I laugh at the argument that my next-door neighbors were having? But I mean, that's the, the honeymooners. That's social media. Like, yeah. like vo- social media is 100% powered by voyeurism. Right. But, but in, the, in the early days of the BBC, for instance, um, the government is the only thing that has the the power and and the authority to occupy those um, those airwaves and populate it with content and the government is also feels that they are the ones that have the kind of social diktat um, to give you the the content that's good for you well what a tool to mold your citizenry right I mean even if you're not a totalitarian state the idea that you could send out a, a centralized idea of what uh, values are and what citizenship is. That's very tempting. It's kind of interesting that the U.S. didn't, uh, never went through that phase, really. We, we sent that to other countries. It, it, we had Voice of America on Radio for Europe. It is very curious. In the U.K., for instance, uh, and we'll talk about the countries of the world in a minute, but in 1923, the Wireless Telegraphy Act or Telegraphy Act. There's no uh, way it's telegraphy. <laughs> the Wireless <laughs> Telegraphy Act. Let me interrupt you to tell you something totally unrelated. I'm Go. watching a documentary about Nick Cave recording an, an album in the 90s, and uh, he's in the studio, and he says he wanted a more stripped-down sound. He wanted the song to sound skeletal. And that's the moment I learned skeletal. that Nick Cave thinks that skeletal has the accent on the second syllable. Skeletal. Antonin Skeletal? <laughs> anyway, do go on. Nick Cave, uh, Global Trader. If Nick Cave has a podcast, people are going to be yelling at him. What, what, uh, what the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1923 did, among many other things, was establish that, uh, that in order to pay for content, in order to, um, in order to fund this new uh, BBC, and the BBC didn't, didn't officially incorporate it until 1927, but that the that the British government was going to charge a use fee. They didn't posit it as a tax. They they structured it as a fee. If you were going to have a radio, and you didn't, did you get the radio? You go buy the radio. Oh, you don't. The fee doesn't pay for your radio. No, no, no. You go get a radio. What do, but if you're going to listen to the BBC on the radio, if you're going to listen to the programming we're we're creating, you're going to pay a fee. This is this is familiar to any modern listener who grows up paying eight dollars a month for Disney Plus or whatever. Right, but the but it's very odd. Well, the challenge was that they couldn't keep you from listening to the radio without paying the fee. Oh, like, that's a good Disney point. Plus won't. <laughs> Disney Plus won't, you just can't watch it if you haven't paid. Unless you know your neighbor's password. But in, in 1927, they didn't have the power to scramble the broadcast and have you have a little box on top of your radio that unscrambled it. Did they? Did people think there was? Did they put like a fake coin slot in, in your TV? No, that will come. Uh, that's nominally the topic of the show. But, uh, but it was, you know, it was kind of an honor system. Like you pay a fee to, uh, to the, the BBC for the privilege of listening to the radio and do you, can you opt out i don't like the radio you can say we don't listen to the radio well you can you can say we don't have a radio we don't listen to the radio and i see the problem here which is how would you verify how would you verify right and um and so the the in the uk this question of like how do you prove that someone is or isn't listening to the radio do you know the mechanism, by the way? Do you have to show up at a DMV-type building once a year and tell them, I'd like to listen to the radio, Mom? Well, I do I do know the, the mechanism as it evolved. Um, because, in you know, initially it was just a 10-shilling charge. Uh, by, um, by the late 40s, after the war, television came into the picture. And 
to want to get a television watching license than was now a um, a surcharge on top of your radio listening license. It was uh, it was two pounds to get a a TV license because now the BBC was in the business of making television. And that's just admits that TV is much better than radio because it's much more expensive. It's more expensive than radio and it's more expensive to produce. Why, why don't you just fold it into somebody's taxes? I mean, at this point, I mean, pretty quickly adoption gets so widespread that they know everybody's listening to the radio. Why not just well, make it part of the ministry of magic's budget or whatever? That, and, and that is a, that, that's an idea that is still really in play um, in, in so many nations of the world. And as Americans, we, we, not only don't we think of this, it has never occurred to us that it's true. But in an awful lot of the countries of the world, television, and I'm not talking about cable television, I'm talking about TV, televisions, the old style television with, a, with, a, with an aerial on, on the roof, came with a fee that was not a tax. It wasn't charged along with your electrical bill as just a thing that everybody in the country, it's like, like we here in the United States fund our roads by just, you know, folding in taxes into sort of general tax. One big pot. And then that money gets disbursed to pay for all these public works. Um, instead, television watching was, was considered a thing that you opted into at which point you had to pay largely based on the honor system, pay for the rights. You can see in the way that the fees are applied, um, there's a, it's much more expensive to get a color TV license than it is to get a black and white TV license. Is this still the case? You can still get a black and white TV (laughs) license. But where would you get a black and white TV? That's the thing. Uh, You can still get a black and white TV license in the UK for only 52 pounds a year. You'd think now the difference would be high def, for example. Like, are those those distinctions? Do you have to pay more for HD? Well, this has been the the increasing challenge just in recent years because the the idea of a TV license was uh, that it applied to live television watching. You couldn't charge somebody a fee if they were watching a videotape that their, you know, that their uncle sent them. Sure. If you just have a TV that you only use to watch your, your VHS or Laserdisc collection, you can get away without paying the, the BBC fee. And in most, most countries, what, what the fee represented was, it was the funding source for public television. Uh, and so it was, and, and in that sense should have been thought of as a tax. And in, I think in a lot of places now it is increasingly regarded as a tax or, or, uh, described as a tax. But, uh, but I think it was just that, that, the, the idea that there would be a, a large percentage of the population that didn't have a television that wasn't consuming the products of the BBC that made it that made it continue to be a fee rather than than just simply a, a a tax or in fact a tax that was just folded into other national taxes the fact that it's a fee makes it pretty regressive right it's the problem you get with like speeding tickets where the rich will just speed all they want because the same amount of money means nothing to them whereas that's not true for a, a working mom with two jobs um so in a case like this where everyone's paying the same flat fee, nothing is means tested about the TV fee, right? So what that means is, uh, you know, more affluent people are getting a much better deal for the same TV content. It's a tax being borne on the back of the poor. It's just because it's not called a tax. Right. This is one of those instances where it seems like the question, the obvious question, was just one that never got asked because the system had grandfathered in the notion that you paid this cost as a fee. This is how it should work. It's always worked. It's how it it works and how it's always worked. And what it created was a a kind of impossible situation within, um, within the narrow group of people that didn't just acquiesce to the idea that this fee was part of their budget. Because for the most part, people in in uh, 
in most countries of the world factor in their television fee into their yearly budget. It's typically annual, is that right? Uh, it can be paid a lot of different ways. Monthly, annual, it can be it can be folded in. Does somebody come to your door? Like nowadays, how does it typically work? It's just deducted from your bank account and you don't even think about it? Or? Yeah, and and you would the, mail the... the same way uh, pay, payroll taxes are withheld? Up until recently, I think you mailed that fee in to, uh, to a separate office, the, the television office. You had to remember to send a check. And if you didn't... Remember, if you didn't, nothing would happen. Your TV would still work. The TV was the TV always worked. It was just um, the and and in in the seventies they stopped charging for radio. It was just like uh, it was obvious now that that um, that really television was the was the main media. Well, plus commercial competitors are going to start appearing, and so if you have a bunch of other ad supported options, you're not going to maybe pay the. I assume there are. I assume there is advertisement radio, private radio in the UK alongside the BBC stations. There right? is. And there's, you know, there's private television too yeah. that is commercially supported. But public television plays such a much larger role in in most, not just European countries, but countries around the world. Because as you, as we've said, right, there, the, uh, the, the number of companies that have the resources to put on 24-hour-a-day television or even... 18 hour a day television. That's a very expensive prospect. And uh, to fill that time with, with scripted TV shows and news programs. I mean, all of that is extremely expensive. If you've ever watched any of the BBC channels, you know, it's hard even for a government to do it. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta have gardening shows on (laughs) it at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon before the news in Welsh. So if you think about, um, if you think about what the national television station would be like in Ghana or in Liechtenstein, you know, you know that, that those are going to be government, there's going to be a government station and that station's going to need to get funded. I was in Belize earlier this year when we were still allowed to go places and uh, Belize is, is a tiny country, you know, it just doesn't have that many people anymore. It has like, you know, a fifth the number of people it did when it was part of the Mayan empire. Uh, so it has this very kind of sparse feeling like the national government kind of feels like a like a, a medium-sized city yeah. government. And uh, we'd be sitting in a restaurant and they'd have a TV up in the corner of the restaurant with the local station on. Sometimes they'd have Mexican stations playing telenovelas and, and variety shows. But if it was the local Belizean TV, it would really look like the most stripped-down U.S. public access station. It would just be some Fred Armisen-looking dude. <laughs> sitting, Wayne's World? <laughs> sitting in front of a desk, yeah, reading the news about these about very low-stakes local, um, you know, corruption in the school board kind of stuff and you realize like this is national tv and it's yeah. just broadcasting out of a little two-story building somewhere right probably right down the block from your hotel yeah well and and uh until recently and this will be very hard for future links to imagine but right you couldn't have like belize would not have so easily just streamed mexican telenovas yeah and your 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 uh, national television broadcast in austria couldn't just flip over to German TV for most of the afternoon and throw their own news program in. I mean, a lot of that had that a lot of that was coming via tape, you know. Or, you could dub and license Columbo, but you'd have to pay to license all this stuff and have to pay to dub it. Yeah. You know, a lot a lot of work would go into it. And it was expensive to make to make television. So uh so the 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 idea that these were uh that that these were productions that the that the the citizen the citizenry could opt into by paying this fee, and you could opt out of by in the same argument I guess that we have here in America that I don't want to pay my taxes because I don't have any children in school. Right. I mean, that's the yeah. first thing I thought of is the argument about why childless people have to pay, and the argument is always that it improves your neighborhood in general. For you, right. if kids have a good place to learn how to be people. In the United States, we we assumed that this stuff would be produced by private companies and and would be um, would be funded by advertising and by by you know by fee. That's the kind of independent mavericks we are. We want, right. we want to make sure large corporations entertain us, not the government. But we do have a public broadcasting system here in the United States, but it's actually an ad hoc system. The um, the public broadcasting system is an 
a, a kind of amalgam of a bunch of local public television stations. There is no... It's a co-op. It is. There is no national American public television. There is no BBC of America. There's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but they're just supplying and funding content to local stations. Right. right. And local stations are the are the primary kind of producers of that culture. That's why in the 80s, 70s and 80s, we were watching so much content being made out of Boston and New right. York because their public television stations had... The resources to make that content. Because of viewers like you, John. That's because of viewers like us. And also, our public television is is underwritten by corporations. It's made possible by, by individual contributions. There is no TV tax here that, that, um, that funds NPR, for instance, or... Um, or PBS. I mean, pledge drives effectively work the same way. It's the honor system. Hey, if you're listening, we'd really like you to chip in. Right. But they really kind of have to nag at you twice a year to get you to do it. Is Are similar appeals made in these European systems? Like, are there appeals to patriotism made? Like, hey, we know you don't have to pay this, but a good citizen would. No, it's the opposite. It is a kind of, uh, there's a sort of enforcement model. Ooh. In the UK, uh, what evolved was... Uh, a recognition that most people were paying the fee, but that there was a certain percentage of scofflaws and that the way to bring those scofflaws into compliance was to discover them. First of all, and then find them for watching TV without a proper license. <laughs> and in the early days of television, this was uh, uh, the ability to detect a TV that was, that was, I mean, you could, if, if a television was on inside of a house, you knew that they were watching the BBC because it's all that was on. But you'd have to have some kind of jamming technology like Venetian blinds. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you could get, keep Big Brother out of your hair. But televisions at the time were, you know, those, those, those original sort of cathode ray tube based TVs, they actually they actually emitted quite a bit of electrical oh, I see what you're frequencies saying. that you could detect with an antenna. And in the United Kingdom, this was, the, this was their plan. They outfitted vans with super detection radios and oscillators, frequency detection uh, uh, equipment. That could detect whatever kind of waves comes out of a, a CRT. And they would, so you know who is paying the tax. And in a country like Great Britain. Do you have to put blood on your, on your door jams? That's exactly is right. Is like Passover? That's exactly right. To you, keep you Margaret dab, Thatcher away? Dab some blood on the door. You know, you know the number of taxable properties in the United Kingdom, if you are the government of the United Kingdom. And you then can cross-reference that against the number of people who have voluntarily paid their TV fee. And you come up with a much smaller list of people, a much, much smaller list of properties that haven't paid the fee. What do you think it was for much of the 20th century? Is this like a quarter of the country? What percentage of households wouldn't pay? Well, a stunningly smaller proportion than that. Huh. I have the figures for, um, for contemporary times. Huh. Right now, or, or in, in the last few years, there are estimated about 27 million taxable or 27 million properties that that would uh, that would seemingly be um, places where there would be a television that people were watching households and businesses with That's TVs. It. 27 million households and businesses. Of those, 25 and a half million are paying a license. Really, even yeah. though they don't have to. Well, they remarkable. They do have. I mean, it's they. Right. They have to. I mean, it's a even though they could get away with it unless a van pulls up. Right. And so the number. And, and, and just to maybe this jumps ahead, but what are they paying today? Uh, currently, it is a hundred and fifty-five pounds a year in television license it's, fees. It's not too different than Netflix. Yeah. Right. You're paying a little bit more than ten little, pounds a, a month. A little more than Netflix or Amazon Prime. Or no, in the ten US. pounds a month. Right. Um, which is an onerous cost if you are if you are very poor, right? Yes. I mean, any any amount that ends up adding that much to your 
your monthly bill is going to take away from someplace else. In the UK, people over the age of 70 or 75, I think 75, are exempted from the fee. But is so, there any kind of low-income exemptions? or? Uh, well, there are some exemptions. Um, if you are blind or extremely uh, hard of seeing... If you're seeing a blurrier version You only of, have to pay EastEnders? 50% <laughs> of the fee if you're blind. What if you only watch the shows that are not very good? Doesn't matter. Can you be like, you know what? I know a lot of your budget is going to Sherlock. I hate it. No, it's not prorated that way. <laughs> uh, there are... Uh, there are a lot of people prosecuted, and a lot of this, a lot of these cases do go to court in the UK, and people are given, um, not not like uh, they're not they're not given breaks, but the fines are uh, sort of ameliorated depending on your circumstances. I see. But but in the early in the early years of this fee, when I think probably they had a lot of buy in immediately, but there was this sense of of scofflaw uh, a certain percentage of people were pirating TV. The BBC put onto the streets of the United Kingdom uh, vans, marked vans with covered with the roof covered with aerials. Uh, it's like a Google the Google camera car, and they would drive through neighborhoods, presumably with a list of houses that didn't that were not paying the tax. Yeah, pull up out front and tune their their detectors to the frequencies and they could see whether or not a TV was on in the house. At which point a, an inspector would go pound on the door. Big brother is watching to see if you're watching big brother. And this is a, this is a big part of the kind of CCTV surveillance suspicion culture, the, the idea of big brother. And this is why the British are still knocking over, uh, uh, what 5g antennas it's why banksy is out spray painting uh <laughs> you know fake tv cameras up on brick the, walls the vans made everybody into gene hackman from the conversation we think of of privacy and uh and of big big brother in the united states certainly as a as a uh, we we use that as a metaphor for all kinds of things but in the in the uk they actually had they actually had government vans driving around trying to detect whether you were watching TV. In the U.S., we only had that in one place, which is the movie E.T. Right. Remember Peter Coyote's in his van, yeah. and he's and he can listen to people just talking at home. I'm sure that's a real thing, right? Uh, they use those same microphones that they use at football games, too. Yeah, uh, it's those parabolic mics. Or they're, to, they're listening to you through your microwave. To hear if the coach is uh, swearing. But, but you remember, and he, and all the houses are just like... I hate you. I'm going to stay with my mother. But then the next house, it's like, this alien landed in the backyard. And Peter Cody's like, oh, hey, this hey, might weird. be the one. Let's, let's zoom in on them. As television technology, as the, as the TVs themselves became more sophisticated and switched from, uh, you know, from VHF to UHF and, and uh, the, the, the tubes themselves stopped generating so much noise, the, uh, the, BBC detection vans needed to get more and more sophisticated in order to tell tell whether people were watching TV. And this seems to us like a crazy um I know. Like what a pointless game of cat and mouse they're playing. Like a, a crazy and and it must have influenced the way that they thought about espionage because this is it's it's equivalent to parking out front of the Russian embassy and trying to detect because the detection vans did become more and more sophisticated and were able to pick up on you know they they would they used a series of antennas that would allow them to triangulate both the location and also the like frequency emissions that they could then compare to because there's still only 3 channels on TV Oh, right, because once there's competition, just having a TV on is not no longer enough. Right. You, you could be like, oh, I was watching ITV, Governor. Right. You, you, would, you would say Governor. You would say Governor. But they could, they could gauge your, the oscillations coming from your television like, and compare it to <laughs> what was coming from BBC and tell if you were watching BBC. They're like, this feels like Monty Python. <laughs> that, the waves are very silly. That was a uh, and and there was a whole campaign. I mean, a campaign to discourage people, or rather, encourage them to pay their BBC fee by the threat of this 
sort of government agency that was going to come and, and the fines for not paying for watching TV and not paying your fee were fairly exorbitant, you know, a thousand pounds you would have to pay if you were caught. It's essentially toll evasion. It would be like you, if you were caught driving on a, if you were throwing slugs into the toll booth and driving on the turnpike. As the years have progressed and there have been more, there are more and more television stations and then ultimately more and more ways to watch TV. This became a much more difficult process. And uh, at a certain point, there started to be a lot of suspicion within the United Kingdom that these vans weren't doing anything anymore. Well, that was my first question. And the BBC... Isn't it easier to send around a, a, a team of vans saying? Like, isn't it just a better as a uh, disincentive than it actually is as a... So the BBC is arm? very secretive about the technology in their TV detection vans. Well, you'd have to be. And because they don't want people to thwart their TV detection. Did a hacker culture arise around trying to, you know, countermeasures to. Well, a hacker culture, uh, the hacker culture pretty quickly felt like this, like the BBC no longer could detect. It's bogus. So just ignore the the security theater. Uh, And there, there, and there started to be a lot of scofflodom. Now, throughout most of the 20th century, it was the Venetian blind that gave most of these people away because you really could just park out in front of most houses and see if there was a TV on or not. And in fact, see from the flashes of light. Which show it was. Which show it was. Oh. And they had... Did you have... You would have each of the channels in your van to see when it matches they the... Had, they had optical detectors that could compare the, the, the light flashes. You know, and I think a lot of the... A lot of the commentary about detection vans was, why don't you just go peek in the window? Like that would be so much easier, a so a, a so much more effective way. This is analogous to a U.S. thing where um, they're claiming that uh, the FBI now claims that certain kinds of heat lamp detection things for, I guess, grow operations. Mm-hmm. Um, are are analogous to just looking in the window. Uh, oh, and so, so taking a right. taking an infrared scan yes. is peeping. Yeah, so then this is constitutional because we could walk up and look in your window, and the argument is no, but you're looking through walls, and uh, but that's that's funny that it's pretty analogous to what the BBC is doing with their vans. And the same critiques or the same complaints are made uh, that that you are that you're. It's a different. It's an invasion of privacy as the internet has become part of this equation, the game is still not up because the question of whether or not you're watching live broadcasts became the issue. Wait, so you could stream the BBC and not have to pay the fee? You can you can stream content, but if you're watching it live, you owe the money. If you're if you're watching Netflix and you're paying the, you know, paying for Netflix, and you're streaming it uh, a week later. And does Netflix have BBC programming available, or, or whatever the service is? If like, I can, can I go on my computer and watch uh, uh, Dad's Army? <laughs> I don't know. So, <laughs> What's on the BBC? So the BBC developed its own streaming service called iPlayer, and you can watch the BBC. Um, Without paying the fee? Through their iPlayer, but you need to pay the fee. Oh, and, and it is live. And it is live. Okay. But there's no way to watch Time Shifted? Like, you, they don't dump old seasons of stuff and say, now this is free? So, the, the reason that this is difficult to explain is that it is extremely hard to understand, and people in the United Kingdom routinely do not understand it. Even there, though they're much brighter than us. There are do, there are dozens and do, well they have a lot of immigration Ken, so there are a lot of people there from Turkey that don't understand. But they're also smarter than us. <laughs> I know they are. There are the last year in the last year or or in a typical year, they prosecute over 200,000 people. Whoa. In the UK for failing to pay their television license appropriately. And they spell license with two C's, which really should invalidate the whole enterprise. In the the BBC iPlayer app, you can stream things that are that have already happened, and you don't owe the fee. But if you ever watch anything live, 
you owe the television license fee. And in the course of a year, it's very hard to know whether or not, you know, it's it's hard to... It's like when your phone's accidentally on roaming yeah. and, and you you connect to a cell tower in uh, Vancouver and, and suddenly... you're like, oh no! I owe 20 bucks. Most people pay the pay the fee and just it's just one of these things that in this world of eels where so many like little remora are attached to us every month you just get 10 pounds sucked out of you in every direction but for people that are on you know limited income uh you know this is a kind somewhat onerous fee and for people who are new to the united kingdom or forget to to get a new license when they move to a new location, it um, it can be very confusing, and you can get in Dutch to the government pretty fast. Although it it is against the law not to pay the fee, it is a criminal offense. You can't go to jail for not paying the fee, but you can go to jail for not paying the fine associated with not paying the fee. And so every year between 50 and 100 people get sentenced to jail for an, the infraction of having at some point not paid their television license. Is enforcement easier now that there's an app? Because now you can automatically say, hey, buddy, you use the app. I'm going to bill you. Well, the the problem with that is that people are watching live TV through other streaming methods. Sure. And so if I don't know anything about these, but I'm sure they're widespread in our country as well. Right. And so there is now a technology where the government is surveilling your bandwidth usage. They aren't able to crack the encryption to see exactly what you're watching, but they can compare your bandwidth consumption with Live television. So they can look at the that the waveform and be like, that's Peaky Blinders. Right. Or or to say like everybody's watching this particular uh you know Man United game and it looks like this. Hmm. This is the amount of, of data. Oh yeah, live sport is where a lot of them that's where the revenue is. And huh? then they can compare that to what's going through your your series of tubes and say, You're watching live television, you scofflaw. It is now a, a matter of tremendous contention, as you can imagine. And a lot of the countries in Europe... Because you can Europe, see that it's silly. Yeah. A, a, a lot of nations are starting to abolish television fees. Like Belgium, uh, Belgium sort of recently... Belgium went through two stages. They, the, uh, the Flemish region abolished television fees a long time before the, the Walloons did. Probably out of peak. Um, but there are a lot of countries where it's still... Considerable amount of money. Uh, in Austria, it's 330 euros a year. Um, in France, it's 140. Ireland is is equivalent to the UK. Um, in Germany, publicly funded radio or publicly funded television is still a, a major... Um, it's a big part of like German public... Culture. National identity. Yeah, it is. It, there's a there's an agency called the Beitrag, uh, the Beitrag Service von ARD, ZDF und Deutschland Radio, that collects nationally to fund uh, not just the sort of national television broadcasting, but also funds uh, regional broadcasters. You know, Germany. Uh, there's a lot. They produce a lot of content. The the German television. I don't watch radio. any German TV, so Super but apparently I'm missing out on a lot. Have you not seen uh, Berlin? What is it called? Uh, this new television? It's not new. It's it's a few years old, but it's called um, Berlin Babylon. No. Oh, it's very sexy television. Yeah, I, uh, a friend of ours. Uh, they, they're uh, I don't know, thirteen uh, year old is taking Spanish in school, and so he's watching all these um, awful sexy. Uh, Spanish and Latin American TV shows, and when his parents are like, "What are you? What are what are they doing? Is that even physiologically possible? What are you watching? You're 13." He's like, "Hey, it's for Spanish." Yeah. What can I say? If is the enforcement like this reminds me of our entry about library overdue fees, where we learned that a lot of systems are scrapping their fines. In fact, the Seattle Public Libraries did this about a year after our episode. So you're welcome, Seattle. Yeah. Uh, because it turned out enforcement of these tic-tac-y fines that kind of disadvantaged low-income people anyway was more expensive than the money it was bringing in. 
Yeah, and that's that is increasingly true. I think that uh, in the UK and 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 worldwide, as more and more people are turning to streaming services and getting content uh, like a hundred different ways, without this sense that you are that we talked about earlier of live media having some premium over yeah recorded media, it's. It's just making less and less sense to people, and the social compact that used to motivate most people to just pay the fee. This and is not how complain. TV works. This is where TV comes from. Yeah. Now all of all of their children and grandchildren are like, "Why would I pay to watch the BBC? It's completely <laughs> irrelevant, and it's mostly gardening shows, right? I mean, I'm busy watching these cool American TV shows about British culture. <laughs> um, you know it." it Quite a few countries are realizing, like the uh, like in Turkey, uh, it's folded into the electricity bill. Um, that's true in Serbia too, and in Portugal. A lot of countries have just straight up abolished it. Because um, you're still going to pay for it some way. I mean, it, it, tax brackets reflect these changes, and and all you've gotten rid of is the people who are like, I shouldn't have to pay. I don't watch live TV, but. But a, but a, I guess a, a further pressure, and particularly on the BBC, is the pressure to start having advertising. There, mm. there was a study done that suggested that people in Europe watched about an hour less of television uh, a week than people in America did, but that that... It's the same number of shows. It's the same. They actually consumed <laughs> the same amount of content. It was just, we watched an hour of We ads. saw more Alka-Seltzer ads. And... Uh, and so the sense of us paying a tax to watch TV, it is just an eyeball tax or a, a time tax. Um, and that, that we are, you know, we're funding television. In a way, it's, uh, the American model is less regressive because it's really the people who are buying Fords. It's, 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 it's people that are buying that's luxury true. goods. Like, that's who... That's who advertisers are willing to pay to get into those eyeballs. Right. So it's their eyeballs that pay for our TV. Um, and I guess- I'm you, so progressive when I watch the NFL. You could look at the quality of advertising on any particular show and kind of get a sense of who's paying for it. Anybody who's ever watched <laughs> Jeopardy and seen all the denture adhesive ads knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that concludes TV Detection Bands. Entry 1351.MT1828, certificate number 48968, in the omnibus. Uh, in our current moment, despite the fact that uh, nobody can go outside and feel the wind upon their face, uh, there's still a lively community built around the aims of the omnibus. Uh, some people make the bad decision of following us on social media, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and then jointly at Omnibus Project. Uh, others send us uh, electronic mail to tell us what they're up to. What, what a nice surprise for oh, us to see a few of those every sweet. day. They, they send those to the omnibus project at gmail.com. Ken reads them. And then sometimes rarely when you refer to me by name, <laughs> Ken will say, Oh, I got an email about you. I don't know. You, you appear to complain about this, but then you never actually read the mail. I forgot how to get into it. I don't even remember what the password is. Let's just, what if I just say the password now and then everybody can... <laughs> Get into the inbox and see if we've read their their letter yet. What's the password? Is it one two three four password? Uh, oh no! Hold on, not anymore. Uh, you can. Uh, some people apparently are still leaving the house to go to the post office, and I don't know if they should be doing that. What? That seems weird. But uh, but we've got some stuff in the mail. Uh, what do Whoa. we have? Somebody sent us. Uh, because you mentioned sound effects on Roderick on the line, they sent you a, a Japanese katakana alphabet, which is the Japanese alphabet used to construct sound effects. Oh, how wonderful. And also two tiny little pyrite ammonite fossils. Ammonite is aminals. Yeah, aminals. Or, or animite is animals. So they sent us two of them, so one for you, one for me. Yes, one of us gets this kind of broken-ass one. Probably you, because I opened the letter. Hmm. These are from Lyme Regis, which I guess would be Mary Anning's uh, paleontological stomping grounds in the south of England. Am I wrong about that? Uh, yeah. Is it... They're pyrite, so they're actually uh, a little bit shiny. Oh, like, look at that. Is there a lime Kathy Lee? 
Lime Regis, yeah, Lime Regis is a delicious cocktail from a parallel universe where. Did that have two parts or was it just one part? This this broken one. I think I think they came like that. One is closer to a full shell than the other. Are you mad? You're gonna write them back? No, I just wanted to make sure one hadn't fallen in the keyboard of my Roland Juno 106. Oh, look at them. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're shiny. Fool's gold, though, John. They're fool's gold. Yeah, all gold is for fools, Ken. Three people and Soapy Smith. Three people sent me uh, chick tracts. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Including... We've got enough of those now. Inclu- but you, there's this lag because this show won't air for a while, and the chick tracts will probably keep flowing in. In fact, yeah, I guess they will know when they hear this that they uh, that they got theirs. But this is beautiful. Um this uh Allah had no son this anti-muslim chick tract has Allah art by no uh the beautiful art by what was the name of the good oh the good artist the good the, chick track artist the, the savant joe, minister joe something whatever his name was uh why can't i remember his name and uh, uh this he also recommend oh no a different track came from a canadian listener hopes we'll do a show about how alberta has no rats in it that can't be true. He says it is. And it's a pretty good idea, actually, for a show. Um, you can, without even leaving the house, you can support the show, even if you don't want to send us uh, like this jaunty Frank Sinatra postcard that says it's Frank's world, we just live in it. I disagree. Uh, you don't think it's his world anymore? I do not believe it's he died, Frank's world. Because he died in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> which, which Frank... If not Frank Sinatra, which Frank's world do you think it is now? Frank Furter. <laughs> Frank N. Furter? Is it his world? <laughs> it is all, it's all always de- been his all world. All the deviants took over. <laughs> Just a step to the, the left, Ken. Let's jump do the to time the right. Uh, you, so you, without leaving the house, you could support the show by going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject if you have any discretionary income in these troubled times. Uh, blah blah blah. The address. Oh, I didn't give the address. If you want to send stuff, it goes to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. There's also the Futurelings group on Facebook and other places like uh, what Reddit. And there's a the Gary's Van Discord. Uh, that probably about covers it, right? Mm. Hmm. I have nothing more to say then. You've done it all. I don't know. I think so. You told them about our our Patreon? I mentioned the Patreon. All right. Put, well, the, put the pay back in Patreon, everybody. There's, you, there's a use fee now. We're going to send vans to your house. Park outside. And, and they can hear the wavelength of Omnibus, and they can hear the wavelength of a guilty heartbeat for those who, who could have afforded to donate but did not. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long this this uh, thin film of civilization survived. But we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>